Once a president gets to the White House, the only audience that is left that really matters is history. Doris Goodwin. Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey everyone, welcome back. The President's House, Executive Mansion, Presidential Palace, The People's House. The White House has been known by many names and is an iconic piece of American history. The residence and workplace of the highest executive in the United States, the White House is a functional historical monument upon which many books have been written. Some of the history of the White House does not match the ideals for which it stands for, including its construction and who worked within the walls. So this week, I'm going to talk about the White House, its creation, its history, and a bit about some of the individuals who walked its corridors. Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. As the Constitution made its way through the ratification process and it became evident the Articles of Confederation would be dissolved and a new government would be installed, the Federalists were excited. All of their hard work and position papers and arm wrangling succeeded, and they would now get a chance at implementing a republic. There was just one small problem. Where was this new seat of government going to live? At the outset, New York acted as the temporary federal capital. The Constitution provided Congress with the authority to create a new district outside of current states that would serve as the nation's capital. Two places were in the running, a plot along the Potomac River near Virginia and a parcel along the Susquehanna River near Columbia, Pennsylvania. The House initially passed a bill in favor of the Pennsylvania location. However, the Senate liked a completely different section of the state, and the two sides could not agree, and the bill died. Fast forward to the summer of 1790, when Alexander Hamilton was pressing for his National Debt Assumption Initiative to get passed in Congress. Highly unpopular with substantial opposition, Hamilton knew he had to find a way to leverage support. The answer came in the form of a compromise, where James Madison would agree to support the legislation if Hamilton could get Northern representatives to agree to a Southern federal capital. Hamilton agreed, and in what is now referred to as the Compromise of 1790, he got his bank, and Southerners got their capital. On July 16, 1790, Congress passed the Residence Act, which officially announced a parcel of land along the Potomac River, approximately 10 square miles, would be the permanent seat of the federal government. President George Washington was put in charge of appointing some commissioners to oversee the project. The legislation provided a 10-year deadline and named Philadelphia as the temporary capital while the federal city was being developed. Washington initially selected three men to serve as commissioners, Thomas Johnson, David Stewart, and Daniel Carroll. And French-born engineer Pierre-Charles Lafont was hired to survey and map the city. If you remember, This is the project past episode topic Benjamin Banneker assisted in. Once the city was mapped out, a design for the residence needed to be selected. In March 1792, a competition was announced, and James Hobart's design won out out of several proposals, including an anonymous one submitted by Thomas Jefferson. 
Construction began on October 3, 1792, and would last over eight years before the house was considered finished enough to live in, making John Adams the first president to take up residence in the newly erected mansion. Hundreds of men were brought in to work on the project, including enslaved individuals. Quickly facing a labor shortage and unable to provide a decent wage, the commissioners realized they could both save money on labor costs and find a large workforce by negotiating with local slave owners. Enslaved individuals were brought in to do almost every task associated with the construction project, from clearing the land to making the bricks. Unfortunately, records for the enslaved workers are minimal at best and are therefore hard to track and provide much detail on. But historians have been able to tease out a few pieces of information that gives us a glimpse into the lives of those who worked tirelessly and without recognition on the developing federal city. Most enslaved individuals were hired out by local landowners throughout the outlying area, and it was the, quote, owners who collected the wages paid on their behalf. So while the government did not directly hire enslaved people, they willingly and knowingly paid men who leased out their bondsmen for the project. Many commissioners subcontracted their own enslaved labor, including one named Gustavus Scott, who sent his two bondsmen, Bob and Kit, to work on construction, only to pocket the payment for himself. Leasing out enslaved men was a normal practice for those who dealt in human property, so it's not unusual that the owners would be the ones collecting the wages. Most agreements stated the owner was responsible for clothing and some medical care in exchange for the wages earned by their bondsmen. The commissioner, or the overseer of the project, would provide housing, meals, and some medical care. One benefit to working on the federal property was the ability to get inoculated from smallpox. The cost, 17 shillings and 6 pence, was typically docked from the wages. Due to the recovery time from the procedure, commissioners agreed to not reduce the pay of anyone for missing work as a result of the inoculation. As smallpox was a real issue in Washington, D.C., you would think the commissioners and the owners would band together to make sure they didn't lose their workforce. Alas, it was actually the enslaved men who made the request. Eventually, the commissioners learned how valuable it was to have a vaccinated workforce, and in a 1796 call for workers, a newspaper offered $60 a year, a place for the person to sleep, rations, and sick leave without docked pay. No complete list exists of all the labor used in the construction of federal property. But from the available evidence, we can confirm enslaved individuals weren't just at the initial construction of the White House and Capitol building, but again during the reconstruction efforts between 1818 and 1821, where records show bondsmen performing a variety of functions, including coppering the roof and working in the gardens. While bondsmen and women continued to be a presence inside the White House as a part of a president's household staff, and slave labor as a whole began to drop off in Washington, D.C. in the 1820s after the initial rebuild of the mansion. D.C. was becoming more industrial, and as a result, it was less cost-effective to own people. Instead of providing freedom, many owners sold their bondsmen to the South to work on plantations. Good old Thomas Jefferson gets the distinction of being the first sitting president to bring enslaved individuals into the White House as part of his staff. He was cautious in who he brought up from Monticello, aware of the risk of having bondsmen and women in a city with a free black population. One of these members was Francis Fanny Hearn. 
brought to the White House in 1806, Hearn was selected to come to the mansion to learn French cooking. Jefferson trusted Hearn would stay on the White House grounds and not attempt escape, as she was one of 12 children in her family and was married to a fellow bondsman who lived at Monticello, a blacksmith named David Davy Hearn. Visits with her husband were limited to the semi-annual trips he made from Monticello for deliveries. While residing in D.C., Hearn received a small gratuity of $2 each month from Jefferson and ran his kitchen until his death in 1826. Outside of her duties to Jefferson, historians have been able to confirm she had eight children, with five dying at young ages. And records indicate she was sold after Jefferson passed away, so the remaining chapters of her life will remain unknown. Jefferson wasn't the only president to bring bondsmen into the White House. Several founding-era presidents did the same, as many of them were from the South and saw nothing wrong in the practice. Zachary Taylor, who served as president for a brief period from 1849 to 1850, is the last sitting president to house enslaved individuals in the White House. The mansion has gone through several renovation and restoration projects over the years, the first of which occurred in 1814 as a result of the fire set by British troops. The fire is probably famous as it provides the story of James Madison's wife, Dolly, rescuing the portrait of George Washington. However, it was really the enslaved staff, and not Dolly herself, who can be credited for saving the infamous portrait. The man who deserves some recognition, not just for saving the painting, but for also being the first person to write a White House memoir, is former slave Paul Jennings. Jennings was a bondsman during Madison's presidency and later wrote about his experience in the White House, publishing his memoirs in 1865. It is in the memoirs where Jennings shared the story of the fire and Dolly's command to save the beloved portrait. Jennings eventually attained liberty in 1846 when Senator Daniel Webster purchased his freedom for $120. Jennings paid Webster back through labor. Rebuilding after the fires of 1814 was completed by the 1830s. While several interior renovations occurred over the years, it wasn't until 1902 when Theodore Roosevelt was in office that a major expansion effort took place, leading to the creation of the West Wing. Roosevelt can also be credited for the official White House moniker. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, the House went by many names, and the term White House appeared for the first time in 1812 newspapers. Roosevelt made the whole thing official in 1901 by declaring the mansion and executive office building of the president would be henceforth known as the White House. Roosevelt definitely left his mark, but he wasn't the only one. The iconic Oval Office that gets so much attention in television and movies was first used as a president's office in 1909 thanks to President William Howard Taft, who constructed the office as part of an expansion effort of the West Wing. And the infamous Situation Room is also known as the John F. Kennedy Conference Room. And it's not just one room either, but several rooms designated by their namesake in 1961 as a good place for crisis coordination. Of course, I would be remiss to speak the Kennedy name without mentioning the preservation and renovation efforts led by Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy between 1961 and 1963. The First Lady infamously provided a tour of her efforts on a televised showcase in 1962. What's your basic plan? Well, I really don't have one because I think this house will always grow and should. 
It just seemed to me such a shame when we came here to find hardly anything of the past in the house. Hardly anything before 1902. I know when we went to Columbia, the presidential palace there has all the history of that country in it, where Simon Bolivar was, every piece of furniture in it has some link with the past. I thought the White House should be like that. In 2021, the White House stands at 55,000 square feet with 132 rooms. It contains six floors, three elevators, 412 doors, and 147 windows. Prior to the pandemic, visitors could request tickets through their congressional representatives to take a tour. I was lucky enough to go on my birthday several years ago, and I can assure you it's as stirring and intimidating as it is on television. I remember distinctly rounding the corner and walking right into Kennedy's portrait, and I had all the feels. The White House remains an iconic piece of the chronicling of America and is a living piece of history. It mirrors so much the narrative of the United States, the complexities and untold stories, the turmoil and the grit, the beauty and the ugliness. It endures as a powerful representation of the American government and, by extension, American values. And, as is so often the case when looking at the past, the complexities are what drive the story. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider a rate and review on either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. I love hearing from you. You can support the show through Buy Me a Coffee. Your donations help fund the ever-growing book and coffee supply needed to keep this show caffeinated and interesting, or so I hope. You can learn about how to support the show, as well as look at source material or request an episode topic by visiting the website at www.civicsincoffee.com. Thanks, peeps. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. <laughs>